This brings us to the final division, the Restoration Creation, chapter 19, 1 through 22, 21. This is where it gets even better and better and better. In this division, John receives a vision of the ultimate and final demise of Satan, evil, sin, and death, and then allows the world to be free from the defilement so that Yahweh and the Lamb may dwell in creation with humanity once again. The main point in this division is that all the prophecies of the Bible are leading to the restoration of the Garden of Eden, where Yahweh and the Lamb will dwell and rest with humanity and a good creation and an intimate community of fellowship. The first section in this division is the return of Christ. Chapter 19, the entirety. This section reveals the long-awaited return of Jesus Christ to the earth as king, where he will crush his enemies and take the throne of David in order to rule over the earth and establish a kingdom of peace and joy. This is the beginning of the three most important final things in the redemption of creation. The return of Christ, the resurrection and the redemption of believers, and the kingdom of God coming to earth. So chapter 19, verse 1. After these things I heard what sounded like the loud voice of a vast throng in heaven, saying, the uncountable multitude before the throne. Hallelujah. This means praise Yahweh. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual morality and has avenged the blood of his servants and poured out by her her own hands. Where the merchants and the kings mourn the loss of Babylon, heaven rejoices. And because God is just, this is a just thing to do that God says. Then a second time the crowd shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke rises from her forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures threw themselves to the ground and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! Now, what does it mean, the smoke? Remember, God said that He was going to burn her. But all throughout the Bible, when God's smoke rises up to God, it's from the sacrifice. Now, God says when you do the burnt offering or the fellowship offering, whatever, give me the fat, that's the best part. And what he means is it's the fat burning that smells good. Okay, When you burn flesh on the hand, it reeks because there's not a lot of fat there. But when you burn the rear end of a cow, there's a lot more fat there, and so it smells good. And then the evil foreman grill comes along and drains off the best part. Okay? That was invented by Satan. So, because God says the fat is the best part, the grease. And so when God says the smoke of the offering comes up to heaven as a pleasing aroma to me, meaning your sacrifice is what is pleasing to me. And so the death of the prostitute, our willingness to sacrifice her enticement, is the pleasing aroma to God. Verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God and all his servants and all you who fear him, both the small and the great. Verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like the voice of a vast throng, like the roar of many waters and like the loud crashes of thunder. They were shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, all powerful reigns. 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory because the wedding celebration of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. She was permitted to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Why don't we make these into praise songs for church? Hallelujah, God reigns and the bride is now made ready to be presented to her. And she is dressed in fine white linen, which is her righteous deeds. Most likely this is not meaning her righteous deeds, our righteous deeds. We don't have righteous deeds that can save us and make us righteous. Okay, most likely the idea here is that Abraham had faith and God credited to him righteousness. So Jesus is the credit to us. His righteousness is credited to us like the credit card company credits me a spending limit. It's not literally my money, but it's given to me. And I'm treated like I have that. And so I'm treated like I have this righteousness. But then the Holy Spirit that indwells me then begins to allow me to be transformed by the renewing of my mind and join the Holy Spirit and then do righteous deeds. But without Christ and without the Holy Spirit, my righteous deeds are not righteous, actually. It's only when I join Christ and join the Holy Spirit then I produce righteousness. That is the righteousness, the credited righteousness and the indwelling spirit that allows my hands to actually work good. Verse 9, Then the angel said to me, Write the following, Blessed are those who are invited to the banquet at the wedding celebration of the land. For he also said to me, These are the true words of God. So I threw myself down at his feet to worship him. But he said, Do not do this. I am the only a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony about Jesus. Worship God for the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So he says, This is the great banquet. Remember how many times Jesus told a parable? The kingdom of heaven is like... A banquet. And he went out and invited the people. But certain people said, no, we don't want to go to the banquet because I'm too busy doing this. I'm seduced by the prostitute. And I want to be a part of the prostitute. And so God goes out to the people who don't have that. The poor, the lame, the sick, okay, the, the culturally rejected. And they come in by the throngs. And this is what Micah chapter 4 says too. That the mountain of God, God says, all of you from all nations and all social statuses come to me. Okay, that's what it is. Now, in all this, John bows down and worships the angel. And you're like, what? What is wrong with you, John? You literally walked with Jesus for three and a half years. You, you've seen all the Jesus enthroned in a way that no one ever has. You've seen all these things come. And now you're bowing down and worshiping this angel? I think the idea is just that he is so caught up in the wow. Like right now, nothing's really been good. It's just been like doom, 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 doom. And finally, like the prostitute is burning and all of heaven is like, hallelujah. The last time we've seen hallelujah was chapter 5 when Christ was enthroned. It's been a long time for John. Okay, I don't know how many times he's probably puked watching this vision. He's caught up and finally this is wow. This is spectacular. He's overwhelmed by the emotions. And what this shows you is that the angels could be mistaken in some way for Christ. And I don't mean that literally. Like the, I, I've always said this over and over. The, the difference between Christ and the angels is just unexplainable, right? The, the, he is so much greater. But because they're in the presence of Christ constantly obeying, obeying him, they're going to reflect him. And they're going to look like him in so many ways of character and, and brilliance and all that kind of stuff. I mean, even when they just come down to earth, people are overwhelmed by their glory and fall down before them. 
And there's a sense as John is like seeing this kaleidoscope of all these things. And, and now the emotion, he's gone from depression and sickening of the beast and then watching the world burn and be destroyed. Not literally, but in just in judgments. And, and now there's this wow and amazement and finally, hallelujah. Maybe he's crying and he doesn't can't see very clearly. I don't know. But the idea is that these angelic beings, when you're that close to Christ for that long, you begin to look a lot like him. And in that moment, John is just discombobulated and he can't help himself. And the angel says, no, 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 no. Do not worship me. Only the one who sits on the throne. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open or heaven split. And here came a white horse. Now remember we talked about this. The splitting of heaven is used metaphorically all throughout the Bible of God breaking into space, time, and matter. And, and all throughout the Bible. We've seen this multiple times in world history. It's not a literal splitting of the sky, um, but it is just breaking through. And Jesus is coming. A white horse. The one riding it was called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and goes to war. His eyes are like a fiery flame, and there are many diadems and crowns on his head. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He is dressed in clothing, dipped in blood, and he is called the Word of God. And the armies that are in heaven, dressed in white, clean, fine linen, were following him on the white horses. From his mouth extends a sharp sword, so that with it he can strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod, and he stomps the winepress of the furious wrath of God, the all-powerful. He has on his name written on his clothing and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a spectacular entrance. What is going on here? Christ comes riding on a white horse. Remember, I told you, when Christ appears, it is obvious. The white horse represents victory. In the ancient world in Rome, they would, Roman soldiers would go off into war dressed in red a lot of times, and they would fight the battle, and then they would switch into white clothing, a white uniform, after they were victorious, and they would ride on a white horse through Rome or whatever city they were part of, and their, their soldiers would come behind them, and then the people that they captured in war would follow behind them, and there would be this huge like victory day in England and New York kind of celebration going on. And so white represents purity, but in the Roman Empire, it represents victory. And everybody reading this at this time would have known that. They would have seen this or known about it in some kind of way. So when Christ rides in, notice that he has not fought the battle yet. But he rides in victorious because the conclusion is inevitable. There's no contest. There's no, is Christ going to win the battle? What is going to be the outcome? We know. There is no contest. The world and all of its strength and Satan and all of its power is like a gnat compared to Jesus and even less than that and his power. And so he rides in as if he's already victorious. And yet the enemy hasn't even been defeated yet. He was faithful and true. These phrases are only used of Yahweh in the book of Revelation. He is faithful not only because he is faithful in his character to us, but he's faithful in fulfilling his promises to come back because he finally has come back. And he's true because he's the truth. And everything he says will happen. And with justice, he judges and goes to war. 
how many just wars have we really had in humanity? But this one is going to be a just war. Truly just. Because evil is going to be dealt with. His eyes are like fiery flame. Now why fire? Fire is judgment. In Genesis 49, we're told that the Messiah's eyes will be dark like wine. They will be filled with joy and the abundance of light. And that's what he came. But they're also fiery. They're filled with judgment. Because that father, that son, who is filled with joy and life, and has come to make your life abundant and give you joy to the fullest. The only way you can really truly do that is if he deals with evil. If he deals with evil. Judgment must follow before the abundance of wine can flow. He goes to war. His eyes are fiery flame. And on them are many diadem crowns on his head. Now this is important. Because the dragon and the beast, they had seven heads and that eighth one, and they had ten crowns. This is in contrast to that, that the crowns of Christ are uncountable. He's just not nations here and there and controls these and that, but he, all nations now belong to him. They always have belonged to him, but he's really going to truly bring him under his subjugation fully and completely now. His name was written that no one knows except he himself. So he has a name written on him that no one knows. Now, is it on his forehead? Is it on the crown? We don't know. Yes, one and the same. It doesn't matter. The idea is this crown might actually be the horns. And the horns are a part of him because it's his authority and his power. Now, remember, I'm not saying Christ literally has horns. I'm saying the lamb, the ram, has seven horns. And his name that no one knows. Now, some people said this is Jesus. It's lifted higher than any other name. That doesn't quite work because lots of people are named Jesus. That was a very popular name. Jesus was a popular name in the Greek world. And Jesus is just the Greek translation of Joshua or Yeshua of the Hebrew world. And a lot of people have that. Plus, it says no one knows it. Some people say this might be Yahweh, that the name Yahweh is written on him because the name Yahweh has become unpronounceable. We don't know what it is. The Jews refused to pronounce it for so many years that the pronunciation has been lost. Yes, we say Yahweh because it's based on the consonants, but we don't actually know what vowels really should be there. The vowels are missing in the original Hebrew text. It could be Yahweh. The problem is that that was not God's original intention. When God came to Moses in chapter 3 and says, My name is Yahweh, this is the name that you shall call me and remember me from all generations to come. Which means God never intended the Jews to stop pronouncing it and the name to be lost. I don't think the idea is that it was known, but then they forgot and now he's going to bring it back. It just says no one knows it. So there doesn't seem to be any of that. They lost it. So that doesn't make sense either. Most likely, this might go back to the misreligions. In the Greek world, they believe that the gods or creatures would have these secret names. And if you learn the name of these gods, you can control them or use their power. And there's a really famous story. Well, Rumpelstiltskin would be the modern day Americana one where they learned the name and were able to control. But the ancient one is there's a story of the Egyptian serpent and the Egyptians certainly wanted to know the name of Ra. 
And, and Ra was like, I'm not going to give that to you. Anybody knows it can control my power. Why would I give up my power to you? So the serpent deceives him and tricks him to give it. And Ra gets tricked and he says his name and it takes an entire year for him to say the name because it's so powerful and so mighty and so mysterious. It takes him an entire year. But once the serpent hears it, he has the power of Ra. And this is how he embodies the full power of Ra and even becomes the eternal, mystical, all-powerful, what's called Uberus. Um, the Uberus is the serpent swallowing its tail, which means it never ends. It's also known as the Ujit. The Ujit is the serpent reared up on the Pharaoh's crown and is the all-powerful, all-seeing eye of Egypt, which later becomes known as Horus. That's the idea, and all the ancient world knows this. This is a very prominent thing, even all the way up into the medieval period. This is a very well-known concept um, and in the world around us. And so the idea might be that he has a name that no one knows except himself. Period. Full stop. Not that he literally has his magical name that if you learn it, but speaking to a Greek audience means that it's communing in a metaphor, communicating in a metaphorical way. There's no way you could ever have power over him or control it. If the name of Ra takes a year to say, imagine what the real name of Jesus takes to say. And if it took that much deception of the serpent, there's just no way. The idea is just this is beyond your ability to ever control him, manipulate him, or use his power in any kind of way. He is his own entity beyond all things. And that's the idea that's most likely being communicated here. Verse 13, he is dressed in clothing dipped in blood, and he is called the word of God. Now, some people say this is dipped in his own blood. Okay, his, cape, his clothing is dipped in his own blood, and he has sacrificed himself, and so there's no reason for him to go out and, and do anything anymore because he has won the victory. The problem with that is this does not fit the context. Fiery eyes, sword coming out of his mouth. He's going to strike down the nations. But most specifically, it'll go on. I'll come back to that. I don't think that works. I'll, I'll come back to that. I want to keep reading. So the armies that are in heaven are dressed in following him on white horses. Notice I told you in the Roman Empire, the soldiers of the Roman king's army would follow behind him. So the people dressed in white linen are following behind him. And some people say that these are the believers because they're described as being dressed in white linen. But then other people are like, wait a minute, that's used of angels too. And the angels are already up in heaven with them. And they're the only ones that are ever called the army of God, the heavenly host. The host is a King James word meaning armies. And the, the believers are never called the army of God, but the angels are. Or it could just be both of them. could be both of them. I think that it's either the angels or both. I don't think it's just the believers. I don't think that fits the, the themes that we see all throughout the Bible. I believe that the believers could be added to the angelic army of God, but I don't think it can be just the believers as the angelic army because that language has never been used all throughout the Bible. They were falling. From his mouth extends a sharp sword, so that with it he can strike down the nations. This is a sword that we saw in chapter 1 when he first appeared to John. This is the word of God that is a double-edged sword, ready to divide and conquer. It extends from the south, and it is the word. His actual word brings life, and it brings judgment. And strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. That is Numbers chapter 24. 
A star will rise up out of Jacob, and with his iron rod and scepter, he will crush the scrawls of his enemies. That is Psalm chapter 2. He will dash the enemies like pottery with his iron rod. That is all that language. He stomps the winepress of this furious wrath of God, the all-powerful. That's why I believe his clothing is stained red. It's the blood of the enemies. The blood of the enemies. And I will show you this in Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, verse 1. This is God talking about how Babylon is going to ultimately be defeated one day. The literal Babylon, which will become a typology for the universal Babylon. And he tells Jerusalem that they'll be restored one day. And all of a sudden Isaiah sees this vision. Chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? Edom is down the south. Now, originally, the mountain of God was Seir. Seir was in Edom or in Midian, right around Midian and Edom. We're told, so there's lots of prophecies that says he comes from Seir. And the idea is he moved from Seir, okay, where the Midianites were, because Jethro, the father of Moses, was actually still worshiping Yahweh. He was a descendant of Abraham through Abraham's third wife, Keturah. And then he moves from Seir to Mount Sinai. And then he travels within the wilderness. And then he goes to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And the idea is that any mountain can become God's mountain. Because wherever he is and wherever his people are is the mountain of God. So this idea is he's coming from Seir. Who is this that comes from Edom dressed in bright red coming from Bozrah? Who is this one wearing royal attire who marches confidently because of his great strength? So Isaiah's like, who is this? He sees this cosmic giant coming, this king, dressed in royal attire and red clothing. And God responds and says, it is I, the one who announces vindication, who is able to deliver. And Isaiah says, why are your clothes red? Why do you look like someone who has stomped on grapes grapes in the vat or the wine press? And God answers, I have stomped grapes and the winepress all by myself. No one from all the nations joined me. I stomped on them in my anger. I trampled them down in my rage. Their juice splashed on my garments and stained on my clothes. I, for I, looked forward to the day of vengeance and then payback time arrived. I looked, but there was no one to help me. I was shocked because no one was offering support. So my right arm accomplished deliverance. My raging anger drove me on. I trampled the nations in my anger, and I made them drunk in my rage. I splashed their blood on the ground. So God says, is I, Yahweh, and my clothing is red because I'm stomping on the pagan nations and on Israel and my vengeance. And notice how he makes vengeance and deliverance together. The only way I can deliver the remnant of Israel that are faithful is through my vengeance being executed on the wicked and justice. And what is he saying? And I am angry. I am angry because I look to my people to join me in justice and no one joined me. They went after the prostitutes, so to speak, like everybody else did. And so my own right arm had to work vengeance and deliverance all by myself. And I had to tread the nations and destroy them because their believers would not join me. That's the idea that's being painted here. 
And so now fast forward. Now we come to the cosmic, the ultimate Babylon. And Christ shows up and he is stomping on the nations with his feet. He is striking the nations down with the sword from his mouth and his garments are stained red. But you know what's interesting this time? The believers are dressed in white following him. He's not alone. Because those who are in Christ persevere to the end. Those who are in Christ persevere to the end. Which also shows you that God never intended Israel to join him in conquering the nations. He just wanted Israel to stand with them and celebrate it. But they didn't. Because if they were supposed to join him, then their garments would be red, not white. We're just meant to follow him and praise him as he brings destruction to the world. Because we can't do it. I know, sorry, let's rephrase that. Not destruction to the world, but destruction to the Babylon and the beast and the dragon. And that's the idea. This goes back to Yahweh. For in the fierce wrath of God, the all-powerful, he has a name written on his clothing and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. A lot of your translations say that it was written on his clothing and on his thigh, as if this name is written in both places. But most likely that's not the best translation. Most scholars believe that it is is um that's on his robe that is on his thigh. And most likely the idea here is that his robe, he's on his horse, and his robe is draped over his legs as he's riding, which was common of the Roman generals. And if you were to his thigh, there's a name written on his thigh, and it's under the place that his robe would have sat. And the idea is where his sword is strapped. But his sword's not strapped in there anymore. It's coming out of his mouth. And what's interesting is the idea is that this writ- his name is written on his thigh, under his robe. Meaning that the only way that you're going to see this name is when he f- gets off the horse and reveals, throws his robe back and draws his sword, then you'll see the name. Until then, you won't see it. So you won't really see him as king of kings and lord of lords until he finally conquers everybody. Yes, he is king of kings and lord of lords right now, but we don't see that fully enacted, right, in the world that we're in until he comes back a second time and conquers them and treads them in the fury of his wrath. And that, when he reveals his robe, pulls it back like the gunslinger of the Old West, they pull the trench coat back and they pull the weapon out. Then, when he executes the enemy, then we finally and truly see him as king of kings and lord of lords. And what's interesting is that the name of the gods was usually written on their thighs on the statues of Rome. If you go to the statues of Rome and you see the gods in statue form, their names are written on their thigh. But what's also interesting is the thigh is symbolic of covenant promises. In the ancient world, the thigh is between the thigh that your children come out of, both male and female, which are the promises of God to be fruitful and multiply and to make descendants. But is also Abraham makes his servant grab his thigh in order to swear that I will find a wife that is godly for Isaac to keep it going. And so the idea is that this is the promises of God that I will make you a fruitful and multiplied people, either biologically, literally, to Israel, or spiritually through conversion to the church. 
And is the name, so there's all these different ideas going on. Abraham, a covenant of a fruitful nation, okay? The idea of the pagan gods wearing their name on their thigh, the idea of justice being revealed as a Roman general, and the idea is that this is what it is. And the name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And remember, we talked about the Caesar of Cyrus III of the Persian Empire, called himself the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, called themselves that. This is a common terminology used. The difference is Christ is actually truly making it happen. He's not just saying that, and I've conquered a lot of people under the boot of my heel. But Christ is saying, I literally am that because I literally wear all the crowns of the world. And they've always, and I am the Son of God. This is the arrival of Jesus. This is the arrival of Jesus. And the only way that we can be redeemed and be completely removed of our sin is only when evil and wickedness is completely dealt with. And so just like in our redemption, blood must come first on the cross. But in the redemption of creation... Blood must also come first. Verse 17. Then I saw one angel standing in the sun, and he shouted in a loud voice to all the birds flying in the sky, Come, gather around for the great banquet of God, to eat your fill of the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the generals, the flesh of the powerful people, the flesh of the horses, those who ride on them, the flesh of all the people, both free and slave, and small and great. Birds eating and animals eating dead bodies was usually a symbol in the ancient world of ultimate victory over the enemy. There are times where God prophesies against Ahab and says, Ahab, I will destroy your family. And those who die in the countryside, the birds will eat you. And those who die in the city, the dogs will eat you. This is used over and over again throughout the Bible. And the idea is just ultimate defeat. The unclean, and usually these are unclean because anything that eats Something dead, according to Leviticus, is unclean. So the unclean will eat you and devour you as ultimate victory. Now notice the battle still hasn't been fought. And yet Christ is already entering in on a victorious white horse. And he's already saying, birds eat everything. There's nothing for the birds to eat to say. But he's saying, oh, but it will. It will. Because my victory is guaranteed. I mean, remember, there doesn't need to be a battle. Because all Christ has to do is stop thinking about you and you'll cease to exist. There's no contest. There's no contest. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to do battle with the one who rode the horse and with his army. Now the beast was seized along with him and the false prophet who performed the signs on his behalf. Signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire burning with sulfur and the others were killed by the sword that extended from the mouth of the one who rode the horse, rode the horse and all the birds gorged themselves with their flesh. Prostitute has been dealt with and now the beast and the second beast has been dealt with. All that's left is the dragon. But there's a very important thing to point out. It just says that Christ grabbed them and threw them in the lake of fire. Now we'll talk about the lake of fire when we get to chapter 20. But right now you just need to know there was no contest. This is really important. I've actually heard like youth pastors or some people actually say like, whoa, 
when that day comes, like that battle is going to be amazing between Jesus and Satan. That No, it's not. You are giving the demonic world way too much credit. God is getting a demotion and the demons are getting a promotion in that theology. You need to understand something. We've, for those who were with me in Numbers and Joshua and Judges, you've already heard this. But most of the time in the Bible, when we have battles, they're not epic. Lord of the Rings is epic, right? <laughs> Matrix is epic. Star Wars is epic. Because epic communicates whether the, will they win or not. They're either, either evenly matched and you don't know, or they're just slightly mismatched and there's a chance of it, or they're really not matched, but don't worry, the underdog has something, right? They have their commitment, their belief. They're, but either way, it's epic. Because epic means that there's a question of whether somebody is going to win or not against the enemy. But when you, especially when we get to Numbers 22, I think it's 22, when they defeat Og and Sihon, these giants of men, nations that were so powerful, the Amorites, even the Moabites and the Edomites and the Ammonites were scared of them. And God just comes in and says, and they defeated them. When we get to the book of Joshua and they defeat because they're so faithful to God, it says the king of Arad won, the king of Jericho won, the king of Hazor won. That's it. That's the battle. And the reason is because when the there is no contest, there is no epicness. There's a movie where the bad guy and the good guy come out. I'm not going to tell you the movie because it's going to spoil for you. And it's a really good movie. And I really wonder. Ah. And the bad guy comes to the good guy. And they can fight off with each other. I'll give you a hint. It's Christian Bale. And Christian Bale just walks up with a sword. And you think it's going to be this amazing fight scene. And Christian Bale just runs by with a sword and then cuts the guy's head off. And that's it. And the idea is just absolute supremacy. It's not epic. It doesn't make for like, wow, we won in the contest. That makes for really good movies, right? But there's also something like, wow, that was cool. Because that very rarely ever happens. And that's the idea. It's only epic when there's a contest. And between God and the world, there is no contest. So there's no epicness. But you're like, wait a minute. Weren't there like other scenes like with like AI and some things where it was kind of epic and they battled out? Yeah, because the only time there's epic battles in the Bible is when the people are not trusting in God. And so God is not fighting with them. And so they're on their own. And then it is a contest. Or when God is judging them and he gives them over to the enemy and they're trying desperately to survive, but they know they won't because God has given them over. But when God is with you, it's never epic. It's never epic because there's no contest. And so Jesus comes and says, I'm already in white robes. Birds come and feed. And he just grabs and he throws them in. And I think that's even way too epic for what's probably really going to happen. Most likely, Christ is just going to stop thinking about them and they're going to cease to exist in whatever form or fashion. Or they're going to be carrying... And I don't mean cease to exist annihilation. I just mean cease to exist in their power, their dominance, that kind of stuff. And this is the arrival of Christ. Christ is going to come back twofold. Genesis 49 where he will be clothed. His eyes will be wine. His clothing will be dipped in wine. His 
teeth, sorry, his teeth will be white as milk, and his his clothing and his garments and his kingdom will all be wine. He's coming with joy and life. But on the other side of that coin is Numbers 24. He will crush the heads of his enemies. And this is our God. This is our God. Our God is the God that loves you so much. He died on the cross to make your life, get, to give you life to the fullest and to make your joy complete, as Jesus says. But he also loves you so much, he's going to destroy the wickedness of the world and the people who have shaken their fist at him to bring you a world where there is no more sin and no more evil and no more corruption or exploitation of power. And both must happen. A God who loves you must bring you joy in life. And a God who loves you must also bring justice. And so in the first coming, he shed his blood in order to redeem you. In the second coming, he's going to have to shed the blood of the people who refuse the gift of salvation in order to redeem the earth and bring no more evil or sin. And that's what we're going to see in the following chapters is the final elimination of evil and sin and chaos and death. Does that make sense? This is still a little bittersweet because we have loved ones that we know. But at the same time, finally, praise Jesus because he's coming back. Bittersweet. Bittersweet.